Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 7th, 2014. The Multitudinous States Incarnadine Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. Red. Everywhere is red. Red. On today's show, the overwhelming Republican victory on Tuesday night. Our first segment, what happened? Second segment, what will happen now? Third segment, ballot initiatives. Why is a country that wants higher minimum wages and is stoned voting Republican? And we'll have cocktail chatter and in Slate Plus, Emily and I, and maybe John. I'm not sure if John's even going to be in Slate Plus. We'll try to come up with conundrums for our live show next week. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News, who is in New York, even though you don't work for the New York Times. Emily's the New York Times, yet she's in New Haven. You're the non-New York Times, yet you're in New York. Riddle me this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because we had the big election show here up in New York, so I had to be on set. Um, and you were and... so good and smart. Oh, that's so sweet of you. You watched? I did, only because you were on, because I really oh. hate TV punditry the I, night of the election. But I had the same great experience, which is that I was staying at my in-laws' house in Queens, and my mother, who is just a mother-in-law, excuse me, is a rabid Republican. My mother is not a rabid Republican. My mother-in-law <laughs> is a rabid Republican, but she flipped to CBS, and they're like, and I heard this dulcet Dickersonian tones and raced in to watch. You were the only one with any facts, as far as I could tell, at least in the in 10 all of America. So I watched. In all of America, <laughs> it was it was great. It was insane <laughs> to try and keep it all straight. But um, I'm sure. At one point, I almost wandered into a shot. Like it would have been hugely <laughs> embarrassing, like career-ending embarrassment. But they uh, fortunately there was a cutaway, and I didn't get. It was a pretty intense few days there. What was the best? detail of doing that what was the best like fact that came across you or the the strangest moment besides you almost wandering into a shot i was sitting next to the decision desk which is basically anthony salvanto who's the director of elections for cbs and then all these political scientists and pollsters around him and they look at their models and they have spreadsheets up on the screens and they're basically crunching the models and having these incredibly intense debates about turnout and what's happening in all of these close races. And they're having that intense conversation so they can decide whether a state should be called or not. And just watching that process was, was pretty cool. There was nothing terribly surprising until, except for we had this moment of curiosity about Virginia when it was so close and nobody really expected it to be close. And so there was a lot of like everybody going to their Virginia knowledge, which frankly, I didn't think it was going to be that close. So I was, you know, it took me a minute or two to remember sort of the shape of the politics of Virginia. And um, so that was a moment. Zero of, in on Loudoun County. That well, right. And, and Enrico County and all these other all right, parts okay. of the state. But we're only allowed to say county for one night a year, John. Yeah. That night has <laughs> So that was pretty. Stop saying county. That was intense because while that was going on, everything else was happening. But, you know, there there wasn't anything totally insane other than me almost wandering into a shot. There was a debate going on at the table with 
Peggy Noonan and Bill um, Daly. And like, I thought we'd cut to a commercial. And I thought the debate was just going on like after, you know, <laughs> during the commercial break, because oh, I've been trying to figure out so confusing. Yeah. No, because I've been trying to figure out like 10 different things. And uh, I'm glad I didn't end my career there. Before we get to the the details of the election, let's talk about our live show. We have a live show in Chicago sponsored by Acura next Wednesday night at the Park West slate.com slash shyfest C-H-I. That's wrong again. I've now mispronounced it every possible way. Slate.com slash C-H-I-G-A-B-F-E-S-T. One conundrum we may talk about is um, a great one someone sent us, which is, at what age can you start calling adults by the first name? How old do you need to be to start calling adults by the first name? That's a great question. Don't give a response, John. I heard you intake a breath about to respond. Don't do it. Send us your conundrums, facebook.com slash GabFest. Tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest or email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. One more announcement. On the morning after that conundrum show, we're going to have to tape our regular show in our hotel. And we have space for just a few guests. And we are, we, we're giving some of those seats away to Slate Plus members. And the two Slate Plus members are Eric Nelson and Jerron Burkhan. They've already gotten their tickets. But we are auctioning off two other sets of tickets to people who are willing to make charitable donations to one of these three Chicago charities, One Million Degrees, which serves and motivated and deserving community college students, Students Express, which is a student-written zine that started in Cabrini Green Housing, and Tuesday's Child, which supports families and kids struggling with behavioral problems. Any one of those charities, email us at gabfest at slate.com, the charitable donation you're willing to make, and the folks who are willing to make the largest charitable donations given to us by, let's say, Monday at noon, they will get these extra tickets to this private GabFest taping on Thursday morning in our hotel. John, let's just start with you. So there was a huge, huge Republican victory on Tuesday night. They won places they were expected to win. They won in places they had no business winning. Their Republicans are now the governors of uh, Maryland and Massachusetts. And practically Vermont. Practically Vermont, too. Vermont is a slightly more Republican state. The House map, if you look at the House map, it appears that the entire country is red. If you look at surface area controlled by House members who are are Republican, it is probably 90 or 95 percent of the surface area of the United States. They easily won contested Senate races in Kentucky, Georgia, Kansas, North Carolina. They will end up with at least 52 and probably the plots designated 53 seats in the Senate after Mary Landry loses her Louisiana runoff. So it could be 54, right? It's 52 now, then maybe Alaska, then Landry. 54. Oh, well, Wait, it, you forgot about Alaska. Oh, it's going it to be at least 53. I, sorry. Sorry. It'll be 53 heading towards 54. Just run us through how it happened. We've all we've read a lot, but give us the Dickerson quick take on it. Sure. But let's also add one other one other thing that happened that's important in terms of amplifying your point, which is the right one, which is that it's not only the size of the wade, but the depth of it. So you had these gubernatorial victories, not only in blue states, but also then Scott Walker survived, Sam Brown back in Kansas, uh, Rick Scott in Florida. So you had close uh, gubernatorial races going all for the Republicans. And then in the state legislatures, Republicans now control 67 of the 98 state legislatures. They control the whole shooting match in 24 states. Democrats only control the governor's mansion and, and legislature in six states. That's really important because that's about your farm team, future politicians who will 
end up being in Washington uh, someday or on the national stage comes from those areas. And also, as we've maybe discussed before, that's the place where laws are passed that affect people in their daily lives in this age of sclerosis in Washington. So that's where education policy, health care policy and law and order policy gets passed as well as obviously reproductive legislation related to reproductive rights. One example would be in Maine, if Paul LePage had not won, he's the Republican incumbent governor who did win and who had vetoed expansion of Medicaid in that state that was a part of the Affordable Care Act. His legislature had asked him to take or had tried to push to have Medicaid expanded and use the money from the Affordable Care Act. LePage vetoed it. If Mike Michaud had won, the Democrat, that Medicaid expansion would have gone forward probably pretty quickly. And so there are tens of thousands of people in Maine who do not have Medicaid uh, coverage as a result of that election. So that had nothing to do with the Senate. And of course, there are other ripple effects in all the other states, but that's a particularly acute one. So that's the breadth and depth of what happened. How did it happen? I think it's hard to know. We know what happened in the Senate, which is that the president is very unpopular and the electorate is very angry. Only 22 percent think the American dream is alive anymore. That is to say they think the generation will be better for the children than it is for them. That's the lowest it's ever been in exit polling. And then you have about 70 percent of the people who think the country is in the, going in the wrong direction. And that penalty, frustration, and anger was aimed at people associated with the president's party. Now, there's some complexity here because the approval ratings of the Republicans in Congress is lower than President Obama. And also, we got to remember, but this is, it's not limited to this, but obviously this was a bad year for Democrats. A lot of these races were in Republican territories. So you would expect both by history, where the president's party loses 5.6 senatorial seats in the sixth year of his term, or you also had the fact that seven of these races in the Senate were taking place in states that Mitt Romney had won. So you would have expected a big night. But what accounts for victories in purple states like Colorado and Iowa is both bad candidates in Iowa, the Democrat Bruce Braley wasn't a very good candidate, but also this just kind of overwhelming frustration and the size of the wave. So in Colorado, Democrats were able to increase their turnout of Democratic voters from 2010, which was the last midterm election, to 2014. They were able to increase that size of the electorate. But that was not enough to overcome the fact that with unaffiliated voters and with Republican voters, Mark Udall underperformed where Democrats had had performed in that state before. And that is both Udall's fault, but it's also the fault of the fact that people are just very unhappy with the president and the state of things and the direction of things and the lack of progress in Washington. And they took that out on on Democrats. Emily, do you think that the our voters who are frustrated with the state of things in Washington and blaming the president and, and by analogy, his party. Is it fair for them to do that? I've been thinking of this as whiplash nation, because if you look back at the last four or five presidential elections and the way in which the president, as John said, historically loses support in the midterms, you just feel like people elect one guy, so far guy, And sometimes they elect also members of his party in Congress, at least one house, sometimes two. And then he has a couple years to try to get things done. And some of it bogs down. Some of it does get accomplished, right? I mean, President Obama did pass the Affordable Care Act. And then people get incredibly disillusioned and angry quickly. It doesn't actually take very long before the electorate is wooed by the other party, but I don't think be out of some sense of positive vision. I think it's all about the attacks that people do get really frustrated with our government. Our government is has all kinds of problems in it. It doesn't work effectively the way we want it to. And so instead of sticking with 
the person we've elected to try to fix things and giving him some real trajectory and running power, we just like give up and switch over do, to the other party over you, and over again. One theme of the autopsy has been had healthcare.gov rollout worked, yes, this entire election would have been shaped differently. That there would have because been a narrative. Because it's supposed to be this key moment. The key right? moment because the, the narrative is – even though Obamacare appears to be working more or less as planned, the narrative about government effectiveness collapsed at that moment because the rollout was so poor. And therefore, even the effectiveness of Obamacare in actually providing people health insurance, which it has been doing – has been lost. The moment when you could have shifted to government is capable because we were just coming off of that government shutdown of just atrocious Republican behavior. And then had healthcare.gov launched with aplomb, maybe this narrative goes totally different. John, do you think that's over-determined, over-ripe? There are parts of it that are true and there are parts that aren't. The parts that are true is that in 2010, the healthcare, the president's healthcare plan was what energized Republican voters. The, root, the, the wound was already there. And this broke it open again. And so that energized the Republicans one more time. The idea that a government isn't effective was pretty much well on it. I mean, it was, that was true. It was exacerbated and given a shining, easy-to-talk-about example with healthcare.gov. But people have felt that government is ineffective for a long time. But it gave some competition to what would have been the greatest example of government being ineffective, and this was bearing out in the polls even a week before Election Day, which was the government shutdown. So Republican a super PAC that I talked to was doing polling, and they said, when you talk about what's wrong with Washington, people say, you know, Obama, you can't do anything right with the VA scandal, healthcare.gov, the IRS, the Secret Ebola. Service. They just blame him, Ebola, all this stuff, ISIS. But they said pretty quickly, <laughs> another group, and not all Democrats— people get to the question of the shutdown, and they blame Republicans for that. And so that's why it was kind of a double-edged thing for candidates to talk about the dysfunction in Washington. But I think the the other thing that's important about the role of healthcare.gov and what it did was every Democratic candidate had to be on their heels, had to kind of distance themselves, had to come up with an answer for Usually when you're running for office, you want to talk about the big, great thing you did when you were in office. Most of these candidates, there's nothing bigger and more powerful they've done than vote for the Affordable Care Act. And yet they couldn't talk about it. When you can't talk about your own record and the biggest thing you've done on your record, this is a version of the Mitt Romney problem when he couldn't talk really about what was at one point the greatest thing he'd done as governor of Massachusetts. So that put all the candidates in a box. That was worse than it would have been just for having voted for it in the first place. And then finally, all of this money poured in to attack the law. And that created an opportunity for recruitment of Republican candidates that was helpful and got them into the race. Cory Gardner in Colorado is a good example. He probably wouldn't have run if healthcare.gov hadn't been such a mess and then the Koch brothers hadn't funded a lot of ads attacking senators who supported the law, which told Gardner, if you get into this race, you're going to have a lot of air cover from wealthy backers. And that was all sort of healthcare related. So there's a big way in which that was a huge part of it. But this notion that government can't get anything done, that a lot of that would have been there without healthcare.gov. Emily, another theme of the autopsy report has been, gosh, why didn't Democrats run on their liberal accomplishments? Why didn't they claim healthcare.gov as their own? Why were they so afraid to push on immigration? Why are they so afraid to push on minimum wage? Why are they such cowards? Do you, do you mean, buy any of that? Or do you think that's, that's just pure Monday morning quarterbacking and had they done it, they would have lost even more poorly? 
Don't even. Uh, it's so always so hard to tell with these counterfactuals. But as a liberal, I wish they had done that because then it's like you have the courage of your convictions and you run the experiment and you see what happens. And the fact that minimum wage hikes were passing in states like Arkansas and Nebraska suggests that the Democrats do have a winning issue here and that they could have run with it. And then also reading about the frustration that some Colorado voters were having with Mark Udall in particular, who's getting nailed for narrow casting to women instead of talking about immigration, given the um, growing number of Latinos in his state, instead of talking about inequality. You know, you feel like these candidates didn't necessarily put their best foot forward. On the other hand, it seems like some of them, like Michelle Nunn, for example, ran good, decent campaigns and they just couldn't get enough traction. The turnout wasn't high enough. The voters weren't with them. This is a really, really important point, the Michelle Nunn point. In Georgia, the Democrat there ran the kind of race you're talking about and was given a big free gift. So not all candidates had this kind of gift that Michelle Nunn was given, which would have meant it's harder for other Democratic candidates to prosecute the case the way she could. And the gift she was given was that her opponent basically said outsourcing that I did as a CEO was just fine. Georgia has the lowest, sorry, has the worst unemployment rate in the country. A lot of those jobs have gone because of globalization. So he walked into a huge problem and she exploited the Dickens out of it. And at the end, in the in the uh, exit polls, voters who were the most worried about the economy, who said that was the biggest thing that concerned them, he got 61 percent and she got like 30 something. So he killed her with voters who cared about the economy, even though he had a real blemish in his record that could have hurt him. And even though she had worked that issue like crazy. And so that makes one pause when one thinks, well, Democrats should just run on the economic message. If she couldn't do it, if she couldn't do better than that in Georgia. Now, I understand Georgia's different than Colorado and Iowa, but it's not different than the seven Romney states, you know, so Arkansas, Louisiana, Alaska, South Dakota, West Virginia, Montana. That's a big sort of pushback against that theory. Having said that, the union strategists I talked to before Election Day were saying the key to, for Democrats is to talk to voters who make $50,000 a year, the median income around $50,000 a year, and to talk to them about the thing they care the most about, which is the economy and how it's not getting better. 70% said in the exit polls that they felt that the economy is tilted towards the wealthy. That is a glowing problem at the center of our politics that neither party spoke to and that continues to sit out there and glow and voters are going to keep punishing whoever they think is in power or whoever's fault they think it is until that gets addressed by somebody. And this is a problem for Hillary Clinton in particular. It's a problem for Republicans, not just uh, for Hillary Clinton because Elizabeth Warren may or may not run, but because a candidate needs to find find out how to speak to the people who feel that way about the economy so they can get them to come vote for them. And nobody's figured out how to do that. And on the campaign trail, nobody was talking really in the right way to that kind of and a consistent fashion. So it's true that that conversation was not happening. But I'm I'm skeptical about how much it would have helped Democrats. So, I mean, there's a Chris Christie version of that populist message. Right. And then there is the Elizabeth Warren version, which is, you know, this liberal, robust set of points that she makes is that what's missing in terms of the messaging here? Or is there some like other third way we should be groping toward that nobody's articulated yet? I feel like that what's missing is, a, and this is missing from politics, period, is a candidate who can do 
what Bill Clinton did in in 1992, which is tell people in the audience their own life story back to them. So which suggests that he understands that the politician understands what you're going through and doesn't just say, I understand what you're going through and uses cliches like working from paycheck to paycheck. But a politician who can speak in in a detailed way that lets a voter know that person knows me and they know me on the thing I'm most frightened about. And the reason that's so effective in a politician is once you hand over your warrant to that politician and you think that guy knows me, you'll think he knows you on everything. So like you're fine with him on foreign policy, even if like you don't even bother to figure out what his other positions are because he knows you. And if that's the entry point, because it's the thing you care most about and you're most worried about both for yourself and your children, then somebody's got to talk to that. And Elizabeth Warren talks to that in sort of some ways, but nobody really talks to the, I mean, actually, Mary so it's Landry not about policy. About it. It's about storytelling. It's both. Because the policies have to make it past the elites and they have to you have to survive that part of it, too. But if you're talking about getting asses in the chair or in the voting booth, I think it is about speaking at a gut level to voters on these issues. And it's very hard. Politicians out on the campaign trail didn't like speak a lot to the gut level. It was a lot of basically recitation of, of bullet points one after the other. And that's all a part of narrow casting isn't just, you know, specific narrow casting to individual individual constituent groups, but there's a narrowness of the entire enterprise in both parties that really felt uh, was out there this campaign. Let's close this part of the election conversation before we get to the substantive part of what's going to happen in policy and in government with the question of voter ID, voter turnout, and whether, Emily, the laws and discussion about voter ID had a genuine effect that we could see anywhere on voting. There was not very high turnout, but was the relatively low Democratic turnout a result of voter ID or the discussion of it? It's tricky. I mean, the Brennan Center was trying, which the Brennan Center for Justice, which is very against voter ID and very involved in all of these issues of access to voting. I saw a post that someone there wrote that was trying to say, essentially, particularly um, in North Carolina, where KHAN, the Democrat, lost by 2% to Tom Tillis. Well, you know, North Carolina has these put in place restrictive voting laws, and it could have made the difference. It doesn't look to me like you can really make that case in the numbers. The research shows that the biggest voting restrictions probably suppress turnout by about 2%. And that's mostly among poor minority and disabled and elderly voters who tend to vote Democratic. But that doesn't mean that like every single person in that 2% would have voted for Kay Hagan. And so I think it's hard to see the outcome in a big race get blamed on these laws, given how lopsided most of the margins for the Republicans were. But it and the other thing is it sometimes these laws have a kind of galvanizing effect that happened the last time around. I don't think we saw that this time. And I think there are lots and lots of unregistered voters in states like Georgia, for example. And the question is, is the voter ID, are these restrictions keeping those people from registering? Or is that just like a problem of, you know, get out the vote and registration efforts on the part of right. the Democrats? I kind of think like that That probably voter ID, it doesn't have an acute effect in any individual election. What it has is an accretive effect where people just don't get in the habit of voting or it's been made difficult for them to vote once. And so they then it's, it's harder for them to turn out the next time. And over time, this accretion of small things 
probably adds up to reduce turnout generally over a lifetime. May I make one final point, David, on what happened to your point about the map and why in the House it looks so red if you look at the, just that the district. In 2010, and this is the good work of Dave Wasserman at the Cook Political Board, in 2010, Democrats lost 25% of their overall membership, but their collapse was even bigger if you looked at the map. They, in 2010, they lost 60% of the land area they represented in the House. So the House, going into the election on Tuesday, House Democrats represented 46% of all congressional districts, but just 20% of the nation's land mass. And of the seats that they lost, there's an even bigger chunk, and I, I haven't looked at the calculations now for how much more land mass they lost, but the seats that were endangered represented basically 50% of the remaining land mass that the Democrats controlled. So the party in these non-presidential years is just not, not even touching rural areas in any way, and it's just become an urban party that has a very, very difficult time also with male voters. Yeah, okay. Yes, true that. But you can take it another way, which is that we become an urban country, increasingly urban country. And I, I don't like... Well, not those... enough increasingly to help the Democrats who are now at their biggest deficit to Republicans Absolutely. since Absolutely. I mean, it's very hard for them in the House. No, that's certainly true. I'm not denying that the Republicans don't have a dominant position in the House. But I don't like the visual representation as though that's meaningful. If you look at population well, just, representation, I, I it's, it, doesn't, it's, it doesn't reflect that. I didn't start the top of the show with it. I was just using the numbers to explain the point you had made. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're trying to blame it on me. Well, Fine. I'm just saying Go if ahead. you're going to raise Go it, no, if you're going to raise it just as a picture of Purdy, I was just saying that there are actually some numbers behind the colors. Let's go to the second part of this. What happens now? I think we can look at this in, in two ways. One – John, you've touched on some of the state legislative thing that's going to happen. Let's go easy on that because we don't know as much and, and it's not as clear as some of the national questions. Let's talk about two things. One, nationally, in terms of legislation and governance, what do we think is going to happen over the next two years? Secondly, what happens for the positioning for the 2016 election? Who, has, who gained and who lost from what happened on Tuesday? So, Emily, let's start with the legislative and regulatory and judicial and executive action that we can expect. President Obama made the usual sort of hilarious nods towards bipartisanship. Mitch McConnell did too. It was not heartfelt in either case, unpersuasive. Do you think there are actual places where legislation is going to happen that the president is going to sign that's going to be come into law? And if so, where where are those places? Well, it sounds like they could do trade authority, which I basically had never heard of and had to Google to find out what they're talking about. But they could expand the president's powers to make trade agreements. They seem to be cozy about that. Maybe they'll reform the corporate tax code because that's something that Republicans want to do. And then there are these more controversial questions. Is the Keystone Pipeline going to pass? Will the president sign that bill um, or will he veto it? And could they reach any kind of compromise on entitlement reform or on immigration? And it seems like the big initial question is going to be whether the president issues a sweeping executive action about immigration reform and the Republicans treat that as a declaration of war and then that collapses all the bipartisanship before it even starts. I mean, he's going to do that. Yeah, John? He sure sounded like it in his press conference. So Mitch McConnell had a press conference at 2 o'clock in which he said doing that would be like raving, uh, waving a red flag in front of a bull. And then the president said, well, you know, I can do these executive orders, but if you guys in the 
the House and Senate with your new majority would just pass some legislation. It would just supersede anything I do in the executive order. So, you know, no big deal. I wonder what you think about this, David, if you're a Barack Obama. But the question for Obama is, obviously, he's promised certain groups he would do this. He also doesn't want to just be totally supine. He's also, as he said in his press conference, I've waited long enough. Every time I try and do something, the Republicans like have some excuse for why they can't go forward. And House Republicans dropped any serious investigation into doing immigration reform because it did pass the Senate bipartisan vote. Uh, they didn't do anything in the House because they didn't want to upset their constituency on the, on the eve of an election. They wanted to keep all focused about Barack Obama. So there was no virtuous reason that they didn't do the legislation. They did the legislation so they could expand their majority in the House. Like, so, and it's not like Mitch McConnell is going to have the power to make the House Republicans pass immigration reform. Well, I think John Boehner wants to pass immigration reform. So if, it comes, if the Senate, I think, that, I think it can happen. It'll just be messy. The problem for the president who has all those reasons to do the executive order is if he does this, he will, there is no bigger sore spot with Republican voters than that, which is, it's a combination of both. It's the issue they care the most about immigration. And also it's him taking unilateral action, what they call executive amnesty. And why does that matter? Because if anything is going to get done between the Republicans and the president, it's going to require John Boehner and Mitch McConnell going to some number of their members who are highly reluctant to do anything with Barack Obama and saying, look, He's still the president. He can still use the veto pen. And if we really want to get anything done, and we should want to get something done because we're going to be evaluated by the voters in 2016 based on our effectiveness. If we want to get anything done, you're going to have to mellow out a little bit and accept, you know, three quarters of a loaf or half a loaf to get some legislation that we can point to and say, when we were given the power, we were able to govern and get things done. So keep us in office. So, hey, come along with whatever this newfangled thing we in the leadership have figured out. If Barack Obama puts these executive orders forward. The constituents in the districts of the members who McConnell and and Boehner are going to have to have these conversations with will light their hair on fire, which means any member of Congress who's a Republican who then might ever do a deal that the president would sign has that much more local pressure on, on him to do nothing with the president. And I think that is an issue that the president has to think through. But isn't that win-win for the president? Because he gets yeah, to force, force through this thing, which he wants to do on, exec- on immigration. He gets the gain of that. And then he also puts the Republicans credit. in a very difficult position of not being able to appear to govern, unless you think they will pass a lot of bills that he can't sign and he'll get blamed for that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that's why I asked you is whether you thought that was an impediment or whether you think it's quite the smart thing to do to create chaos in there. Now, the downside of doing this is that if the if the election is seen as a rebuke of the president, an ass whooping, as Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, put it, and then the president goes ahead with his executive order, do people out in the land think, you know, Republicans have just won, and he goes and do, immediately puts his finger in their eye? Because the question right now is which side is going to kind of come over to the other. But even if people think that, John, what are the consequences? There are two years till another election. Obama's not on the ballot. His his approval ratings go down even more. So what? Well, I think the the Democrats, there's there's some pressure after an election in which the Democrats lose so badly to figure out what their next safe position in the conversation is. And if the safe place for Democrats and the ability to figure out what the party stands for and who its leaders are is occluded by two years of an unpopular president. And remember, because Obama's defining the party right now. He wasn't on the ballot, but he was on the ballot. And if there's chaos and people have been in a position to blame Obama for this election, then there's a 
possibility that they blame Obama in the next one, too. And so in the way that there was a backlash against George W. Bush in 2008, there becomes a backlash against Barack Obama in 2016. And the Democrats squander what is a set of demographic advantages that are on their side to regain power in 2016. I'm not arguing for either. I'm just trying to play out the various. Yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. John, do you think that the Republicans have the capacity, the organization to push through a bunch of bills which are so offensive to Barack Obama that he ha- he must veto them, that they're able to get them out of the legislative body and over to his desk. So at least they, they have appeared to take significant action. Yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, so because they could do a lot of small, meaningless stuff and send him to the president. And there would be fights over stuff that people wouldn't, like, pay that much attention to. And But, you know, when it comes to immigration, the Republicans are going to have a big, huge, messy fight. There are going to be a lot of fights within the Republican conference and there should be and we should all it's a natural thing it should happen and the fights will be over whether whatever legislation is put forward is conservative enough and so i'm not sure how they're going to go about it but i mean they have to the republicans have to do something on immigration and when they do they're going to have a huge huge fight inside their party because there are internal problems in the republican party that they now have to deal with and that's true on tax reform too they killed tax reform that was presented by Dave Camp, the former Ways and Means Committee chairman in the House, because it's really sticky and it bums out a lot of people who tend to support Republicans. And so they've got to wrestle with all of that. That'll be interesting to watch both on legislation big and small, but I think it's only the big legislation that people will kind of tune in for. Let's turn to the politics of 2016. So as I look at this election, the people who clearly gained, presidential candidates who clearly gained on Tuesday night were John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, overwhelmingly reelected, admired, generally considered sort of a you know conservative, but not anathema, anathemally conservative. Um, from Ohio. From Ohio, very valuable state. I mean, he, John Kasich certainly is somebody who there are very few Republicans who I would consider voting for for president and out of this party. John Kasich is certainly one of them. Scott Walker in Wisconsin who survives Recall wins re-election without th- that much difficulty, in fact, wins re-election. Chris Christie, who who helped so many governors get re-elected, although I, he wasn't really on the ballot, so not clear how much he bet gained. And I think there's some feeling, and John, you can confirm or deny, that Ted Cruz feels like it was a good night for him in the sense that the Senate has become a more powerful body and there were more conservatives elected and he's he is considered the leader of uh, the intellectual leader of conservatism in this country, and therefore he gained from it. And then on the Democrats, it appears that Hillary Clinton gains only because everyone else was weakened. Barack Obama is weakened. Martin O'Malley, who was going to run, is severely weakened because the, he, his lieutenant governor lost the Maryland gubernatorial race. And there is Mark Warner. Mark Warner. One Mark, re-election. Bar- yes, Mark Warner did so poorly. And therefore, she stands as kind of the, the, the lone rock that stands more than three feet high in, in, in the, on the plane. Are there other people you think have gained? Are there, are there, is there nuances to who gained? I think that's a good rundown. My question about Ted Cruz is how much of an internal battle within the Republican Party there will be in the Senate, and I guess in the House, too, between the people who are calling, for example, for full-on repeal of Obamacare, let's do that, 
let's challenge the president to veto it, but by all means, bring it on versus the kind of more realist statesman position, which Mitch McConnell seems to be embodying right now. I'm really interested to see how much of a fight they have or whether they smooth things over. John, what do you think about that? Uh, I think David laid it out perfectly. I think the it's going to be really interesting to watch the three freshman senators who all would like to run for president because their goal in a Republican primary is to set themselves apart, which means they have to do lots of exciting things, either in speeches, which is what Rand Paul has been doing by talking about policy ideas that are not traditionally talked about in the Republican Party, which gets him noticed, and that's important. Or they're going to do it by running against Mitch McConnell and or running against whatever the, the Senate in Washington is doing. I think you get less coverage and less notice in in grassroots circles if you're just, a, you know, the next vote on a thing that passes with a lot of Republicans. You got to define your way to define yourself. And, and Ted Cruz so far has sought to define himself in opposition to the Republican establishment. I mean, he said that Mitch McConnell was basically a part of the capitulation by the establishment on the debt ceiling. The fact that this government shutdown did not hurt Republicans Ted Cruz was not in a mood to believe that the shutdown has ever hurt Republicans, by the way. But he's really Mm going to be in that mood now because he'll say we won overwhelmingly after we stood for our principles. And oh, by the way, I was the one who led, even though he says it's all Harry Reid's fault. I mean, clearly he's the one associated with taking that hard line. So I think Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz, it's in Ted Cruz's interest to have a lot of fights with Mitch McConnell Say McConnell's moving too slowly, not, not not acting on principle. And Mitch McConnell, who wants to get things done because he's worried about those nine Republican senators who are up in 2016 in states that Barack Obama won twice. He's going to be thinking about their futures because their futures are connected to his future and his staying to be a majority leader for more than just two years. And so he's going to be in a no mood to put up with a lot of foolishness from Ted Cruz. And the question is, what tools are still available for a majority leader to keep their membership in line? It's a different Senate than the one Mitch McConnell grew up in. It's a younger membership, which has less kind of feeling about waiting your turn in line. There are a lot less, a lot fewer old bulls who are kind of there to keep people in line. And the, the route to stardom and fandom these days is much easier through both the green room, but also through the fundraising networks that raise money for grassroots. I mean, Ted Cruz, they tried to turn him into a pariah, but then when they needed to raise money for these Senate races, they sent Ted Cruz out onto the trail and he showed up with candidates. And um, that's a tricky thing is the, the inside the Republican Party is going to be super interesting and much less so in the Democratic Party, except for the fact that there is the conversation we had before, which is like, who can sort of do the old time religion in the in the Democratic Party? And there's nobody really there who can do it. Is there anybody besides Hillary that you see standing? I mean, the best version of this I've ever heard was Tom Harkin at his last steak fry talking about the fact that government can give people hope. And he told a story of his dad and not having a job and then getting a job as a part of the of FDR's New Deal and how that gave him dignity and how that dignity then was passed on to Tom his son. Harkin and, is not in the Senate anymore. No, no, I understand that. So I'm who, just my point is that he's the only person I ever heard give anything close to the kind of speech that Democrats would rally around in terms of speaking to them about the reasons they got in politics in the first place. And Barack Obama, at the end of his press conference this week, talked about he was asked sort of why things didn't go well. And he he hinted this idea that the reason he won in eight and 12 was that there he gave people a story, a sense of hope and, and a sense of a sense of possibility. Yes, a better day is coming. And this is particularly true with younger voters. And that nobody gives them that anymore. And so Elizabeth Warren, to the extent that she speaks about the specific policy issues at this, 
may or may not, although she's, you know, her YouTube videos, uh, videos are quite popular, may or may not do that. I don't, I just, I don't think that that person has been found yet uh, on the Democratic side. So let's turn to the last topic around the election, which is the ballot initiative. So even as the country was overwhelmingly electing Republicans to legislatures, to the Senate, to their own state legislators, to gubernatorial mansions, they were voting for ballot initiatives, which liberals favored, namely to legalize marijuana, which happened in Oregon, Oregon, I can never pronounce that right, Oregon, Alaska, and uh, my beloved home city of Washington, D.C., and to raise the minimum wage, which happened in Alaska, Arkansas, South Dakota, Nebraska, and there was a non-binding vote in Illinois. And then there was a personhood amendment that went down in Colorado, I think. Is that right, Emily? Yeah. And North Dakota, and North South Dakota. Dakota. Yeah. So what, what lessons, Emily, should we take from the liberal tendencies of voters when it comes to minimum wage and, and pot, but mostly minimum wage, weighed against their conservative tendencies when it comes to actually voting for candidates? Minimum wage seems pretty interesting to me that it's this single issue. People understand it. They're pulling the lever. I don't know whether that means that Democratic candidates need to talk more about it. I think that's the obvious lesson. I guess the counterintuitive backflip would be to say, oh, well, voters have figured out they can do this on their own. They don't even need to elect Democratic politicians. (laughs) So forget it. But I think to me, the most important lesson is that Democrats can talk about this, that it resonates with voters in really conservative states. Do you think that the Democrats are going to have success, John, in turning minimum wage now into a national issue? They've seen the, the local success state by state. Or is it is it one of these things where, where the conservative message, which is always about getting federal, big federal government regulation away, makes it impossible as a national issue? I think the distinction here, there are a couple of them, is that um, just because you support an issue doesn't mean it's the one you vote on. Uh, when it comes to an actual member of Congress. So it's not the most salient issue in your vote. Right. So if you're confronted with it, fine. But it's not like you're going to be like, I'm picking that guy or woman for this reason. Right. And especially when your feeling about that guy or woman is driven, as it appeared to have been, by this sort of sense of frustration and anger, which is much more powerful than like... So you can still be angry at somebody and hate and hate everything they represent, even if you agree with one of their positions. And so, and that I think probably works both ways. So there are a lot of Democrats who think it's a good idea to go go after ISIS, even, even with boots on the ground. The greater majorities for that than there are for individual Republican presidential candidates or or members of the Senate. So there's obviously some Democrats who vote Democratic, but support a position that Republicans hold. So I think that maybe explains that. Now, to your question, David, the Republican Party has the same problem trying to speak to middle class voters the Democratic Party has. You know, if you listen to Rick Santorum, who's quite articulate on this about framing the fact that the Republican Party is seen as the party of rich people in Wall Street, and then unless it fixes that, it's not going to win in presidential years. So his argument is basically the class version of the demographic argument a lot of other people make. So if he's right, then Republicans have to find an answer to that. And um, being opposed to everything that seems to help that group of people, whether it's minimum wage or measures to ameliorate the high cost of college or at least the high cost of paying off college loans, then that's probably a lurking problem out there for Republicans. So I don't know if this will create a new movement for the minimum wage, but 
they've got to figure out what their economic message is. Another thing we should mention in terms of economic messages is the governors who cut taxes got reelected and those that raised them didn't in Illinois and Maryland. They didn't. And Brownback and uh, Scott and Walker all got reelected, which is, you know, people like tax cuts. But just as we tally up pieces of evidence for different kinds of economic theories, at least the voters like tax cuts. You know, the voters are really stupid. People Which are voting voters? The so Kansas voters? All, all the voters. Every voter. Voters are voting against their own economic self-interest in such enormous numbers. It is shocking. The Republican well, unless... Party is the party that is overwhelmingly benefiting very rich people. It tells a story which isn't true about the way economic growth works. And it's, it is bizarre to me that the country is, is, believes it and believes it and believes it and believes it and believes it for decade after decade after decade. It's just a narrative that doesn't actually hold together when you, when you look at it. And yet, yet they still do well. Wealthy people have done very well for the last six years under a Democratic president as well. I think that's part of what blunts the argument, right? Although it is amazing in Kansas. I got a little obsessed with reading about Kansas because Brownback's cuts have been devastating for the schools. He can't make an argument that the economy has done better because of them. And yet he made it through. I don't understand it. I don't know when this when this kind of mass delusion is going to end. Well, people it's vote so for strange. other reasons, right? They have other priorities and other ways of framing for? the issues. What are they, or they, what don't are they vote. voting for then, Emily? What are they voting for if not for their own economic self interest? What is it? It is it, that's it is. I'm not saying you're not right. You're obviously right. It's just it they is strange to me that this of... tribalism and this kind of national sense of the this some sort of national sense of identity around conservative ideas has trumped the actual lived reality that people experience. But I think lots of us are tribal about politics. People vote their social and cultural identities. I mean, think of the quotes when people are saying, hey, yeah, I like Obamacare, but I've been a Republican yes, my whole right. life and I'm not totally. switching now. Like, this yeah. is where they live deep in their hearts. I know, but I feel like I know. we do understand that, right? I mean, you might not vote in your own economic self-interest. I, I probably people have don't. other reasons for casting I probably a vote. don't. But, you also, but well, then, are I'm, you as stupid as everybody else? Well, exactly. Well, I no, no. But I think so secondarily, opinion. people don't think that it's like they don't think by voting for Republicans that their that their lives will be worse economically. They just believe in a different set of outcomes that will come as a result. But, but John, saying I'm, that I'm saying they're, so, they're deluded. I'm not deluded. I I'm absolutely clear that when I vote for candidates who want to raise taxes on people like me, that my I'm economically going to be harmed by that. I understand that to be true. I'm not sure that all these voters have made the connection. There's a theological belief system around what tax cuts do or around the way government doesn't work that has trumped the actual reality that people live in. And it's gone well, on for such a long time. But people say government doesn't work. And then we just spent all that time talking about how the collapse of healthcare.gov made. In fact, a, they have evidence that government they, doesn't no, work. But they're not like crazy. You guys are, but you guys are totally, that's that's not right. The collapse of healthcare.gov was, there was a website which the government should have, you know, was launching, which didn't work. But in fact, then the lived reality of people under Obamacare is, oh, actually, this does work. We now have a, a way for to get health insurance that we didn't have before. The, so, but then there's the VA scandal and the CDC mismanages the beginning of Ebola here. There is evidence, if you want to look for it, that there is mismanagement of the federal government. You can find that. You're conflating you, the people you, who are voting against but, Obamacare. I think the people... Go ahead, sorry, John. With the people in well, Kansas. Well, no, the people who are voting against Obamacare are not all also benefiting from Obamacare. There is a lived reality for a lot of people who, for example, have benefited from Medicaid expansion who are 
grateful to about for, for the Affordable Care Act and probably and maybe some of them even went and voted in support of Democratic candidates as a result. But then there's a whole other host of people who are whose determinations about the Affordable Care Act are made because of other things. But John, very f- there are very few people in this country who do not look around them and if they if they performed a rigorous accounting of how government interacts with them that they wouldn't recognize that oh you know what i am getting medicare look at that nice medicare i'm getting why is that there because it's a government supplied benefit that the legislature and president passed i'm getting social security i have roads interstate highways even though i live in a relatively remote part of the country there are government built roads that are allowing me to transit to places i want to go very easily there are national parks that I am visiting. It's, it is very hard to be somebody who is honest about what government is giving them and say the government is completely incompetent. Government is, is like overwhelmingly competent. And right. then there are these visible, a few visible things that go, things wrong, that go right? wrong. And that becomes we, their narrative. That's sort of human nature-ish though, right? I mean, I feel like that there's so many things that the city of New Haven, where I live, does right. And yet we spend our time complaining about the times they don't pick up the snow and how like right outside our house, there's no sewage drain. And so water collects like that's what I associate with city government, even though, of course, you're right. It's deeply unfair. They open the libraries, the schools, the courts, the roads every single day. People don't think that Medicare and Social Security, because it's been so demagogued back and forth by both sides over the last 40 years, those things weren't on the ballot. In the, and now maybe Democrats should have worked harder to make them on the ballot. Republicans certainly worked hard to talk about how Medicare was cut as a part of the Affordable Care Act. But I don't think that was in top of mind in this, in this election for, for a lot of the voters that you're talking about. We're ingrates. We're ingrates. That's the lesson. Okay, let's turn to cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, you must have had so many cocktails. Also, you're a Kentucky <laughs> bourbon man, like like uh, Mitch McConnell. So, what when you're having a, a bourbon with Barack Obama and Mitch McConnell? I hate bourbon, by the way. Can I just say that? I just want to express I find bourbon and whiskey just the worst. So, I will not be joining you. But what will you? What will you be chattering to them about? I'm not. You know, I'm I'm not as much as a bourbon drinker as I used to be. But I I mean, I totally see what you're saying. I also that there's the kind of all of the well, I guess as a gin drinker, I should shut the hell up because I was going to say there's all of the faffing around about that goes along with drinking bourbon and single. But there's that there's more of that with gin. So never mind. Shut up, John. Um, my chatter is just well, two things. One, everybody should listen to David's um, working podcast because it's great, but also because the Stephen Colbert episode on his intense getting into character or the the portion of the episode that's about and his preparation and preparation and the work he does is it's just amazing just by itself, period, because you kind of think like, oh, funny guy. He's just a funny guy. You know, he's like, you know, OK, in life, he's funny at the right time in front of some cameras. And but I had the great opportunity to actually go and watch the show after the election, which was a wonderful um, antidote to the election process. And watching it take place from the audience, it's extraordinary how much thought and precision on the production side, but also from, you know, the character at the center of it, from Stephen, where everything is, you can tell, is thought through. And even the most improvised, he did this thing where he was pretending not to gloat about the election results, but then, of course, went on and gloated like crazy. And when you see it being set up, you can you can tell that they, like, rehearsed this down to, even though it looks totally improvised, down to a fare well. And just that 
getting a chance to see precision from behind the scenes is such a cool thing, especially when you're kind of not expecting it. Like if you, you know, you watch somebody make a cool sculpture and you watch the process right in front of you and it unfolds and you're kind of expecting that. Um, but to, to go and just think like, oh, I'm going to laugh. And then to just see all of the kind of stuff on the side that happens that requires sort of the old boring qualities of focus and pluck and planning all to make something look like none of that was ever involved. It's just a very, it's a very cool thing to do. And so not everybody is lucky enough to go to the show, but you can get a real taste of this if you listen to David's podcast. Oh, John. There we go. We buttoned that fucker up. We buttoned that. Well, it's all Emily's good idea, so. (laughs) It is? No, it's not. All right. We're just doing the show here, guys. You don't need to curse, John. It's out of character for you. I know. You the really got over. carried was, away. Oh, man, once we get it, once election season is around, it's, the, it's, all heavy, heavy, it's a heavy expletive uh, period for me. I will go back to being a reasonable person once because the conversations you have with all the people involved in these races are all heavily expletive laden. Emily, without expletives, what is your cocktail chatter? <laughs> I am going to be very wonky and chatter about my favorite ballot initiative. California knocked a whole bunch of crimes down from felonies to misdemeanors. These were called wobblers. And in addition to the fact that it will get some people out of prison and shorten prison sentences, it is a really important antidote to California's three strikes law, which had led to life sentences, equivalent life sentences for a lot of people, some of whom had committed some awfully minor crimes. I wrote about this a couple of years ago for the New York Times Magazine. Um, It stayed this real issue for which um, lefties in California raised the money to put it on the ballot. Mike Romano, who teaches at Stanford, is one of the people involved in this who I wrote about. And I it's it will really do some good and make the world a more. What what is an example of a wobbler that got pushed down? Shoplifting. That's good. Other another one. Check kiting. That was another one. Shoplifting and check kiting. Check kiting is not a felony. Hmm. It doesn't. It depends on what the value is. I think they did it under nine hundred and fifty dollars for oh, both okay. of those crimes. Right. That makes sense. You're all right with that. I'm all right with that. I think also possession. There were some drug possession um, charges that got knocked down too. Uh, my chatter is about a wonderful trilogy of books I'm reading called the Southern Reach Trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. It is a series of three because it's a trilogy novels about uh, <laughs> about uh, a strange place. In, it's it's wonderfully strange. I don't want to give too much away, but there's a place called Area X, and it is a it's a sort of a swampland somewhere in the southern United States, which has a dome, some sort of a ma- invisible dome has appeared over it thirty years ago, and then weird things are happening inside it, and the people outside of it. The government forces, the government officials outside of it are trying to figure out what's going on. And it's uh, I'm a midway through the second book. It's super vivid and strange and quite beautifully written. It's, it is a genre fiction in the sense that it's, it's one of these dystopian, utopian, sci-fi kinds of books. But it's, it is written quite poetically. So I strongly recommend it. Southern Reach Trilogy. It's a little bit like the Stephen King book, The Dome, except that rather than trapping inside all these people in a town it kind of traps in nature inside and what happens with nature so i thought i was because it was election week i'm just i just did a little bit of crediting this week 
I thought about what kind of elected fi- official each of us would be if we were an elected official. So our producer is Mike Volo. I feel if Mike Volo were an elected official, he would be a soft-spoken comptroller. He'd be very efficient, effective, honest, doing things a little bit behind the scenes, not too much drama, possibly embezzling millions of dollars, but we would only find that out later. <laughs> Quietly. Quietly. Our intern, Max Tawney, would be, he'd be that alarmingly young state legislator who is pushing. The 18-year-old. Yeah, the progressive. He'd be pushing some kind of progressive legislation crazily and, uh, you know, would always be buttoned up and just really on. Andy you Bowers. Mean he wouldn't be a machine politician from Tawmany Hall? He would not be from Tawmany Hall, no. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, however, would be, he'd be like a four-term governor running a political machine. Just all kinds. There would be some really sinister shit in the background. We just wouldn't really know what it was. But it would be very effective, effective, but 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 uh, intimidating machine. Joel Meyer, our new managing producer, I don't know him well enough, but I'm guessing I think he's maybe like a sort of a ways and means chairman type. So he's he it's a it's like he's taken over this ridiculous institution, but he's going to be the person who gets stuff done within this ridiculous institution. The competent person uh, kind of managing in an incompetent world. Are sh- and you'll you want to know what you guys are, don't you? Hey, you I'll just made us the incompetent world. No, Thanks I'll get to it. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Check our Twitter feed at slate gabfest. And our email address is gabfest at slate.com. Email us if you would like to make a charitable donation and come see our private show in Chicago next Thursday morning. Please subscribe to Gabfest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. You can find us by searching for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. So what would Emily, John, and I be? Emily, of course, would be an elected judge. You'd be a justice. <laughs> elected? On yeah. You'd, well, you, don't get, you can't be appointed. These are elected officials. Oh, right. Okay. You'd be elected on, a, on some kind of state Supreme Court. But you're, right now, you're probably being targeted Yes, for, for a recall. For a recall, but not, for, not because of your crazy liberal views, but it would be some like parole decision you made many years earlier that was coming back to haunt you. They wouldn't mm, be attacking okay. you front on. They would be the corporate interests would be going after you sideways. John Dickerson, you know what John's going to be. He's the last moderate senator. Senator. We don't even know if he's a Republican <laughs> or Democrat. He's not even sure. Yeah, he shares a house with Angus King. His yeah. whole body is purple. His whole body. He's wearing purple all the time. I would be. I would be some sort of populist blowhard, squawking all the time. Ted in some in a Ted Cruz like manner, although perhaps on different subjects. For Emily Bazelon and Senator Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will (laughs) talk to you next week, and we'll see you, some of you, in Chicago at our live show. Please come. Slate.com slash ShyGamFest. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.